Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19 is our text for this morning. And already, I'll tell you that, and I'll confess to you that I'm not going to get through this passage today, okay? Shocker, right? Mark 3, verses 13 through 19 is our text for this morning. And I've titled this message, The Master's Plan for Fulfilling His Mission. The Master's Plan for Fulfilling His Mission. This is the Word of God, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The Lord blessed the reading of his word. Well, this month, as you know, we've been talking a lot about the fact that until Jesus returns, we have a mission to accomplish. And that is the mission of the Great Commission, right? That's articulated for us specifically in Matthew chapter 28, really in every gospel, Luke 24, at the end of Mark, um, especially in Acts chapter 1, that upon Jesus' ascension, he called his church, and we've encapsulated this in our own mission statement as a local church, he called his church to exalt his name by making disciples who know, love, and serve him. That is our mission as a church. It's really... Um, a smaller articulation of the Great Commission. It's nothing new. Jesus himself said it. So why are we going to reinvent the wheel? Amen? And so we've been talking so much about this mission that we have as a church. And that no matter where you may be in this world as a believer, this is your mission. To exalt Jesus' name by making disciples who know, love, and serve him. And of course that begins with us being disciples who exalt Jesus Christ by knowing him and loving him and serving him. You know, we just prayed for Team Turkey, and I'm so encouraged about seeing all of those pictures on social media of the way, the way that they are ministering to our brethren there. Hal and Amy are sent out missionaries from here, as well as how they're ministering to other brethren. And I hope that you have been praying for them. You know, that is a mission field in Turkey, where the Great Commission is to be expressed. And there are people in that country, believers, who are doing great work there. And we just go as an extension of this local body to come alongside of them and strengthen what they are doing there. Then we have, of course, Pastor Tim and Tina leaving this week to the Philippines yet again to do church strengthening and and leadership training, to train men how to preach the Word of God accurately and clearly so that God's people will be loved and cared for and they can grow in Jesus Christ. That is a mission field in the Philippines. And then pretty soon we're going to be sending out Team Thailand with Pastor Alex. And they're going to be going with brethren in Thailand to minister, come alongside of them to assist them. And as these, these brethren are in that country helping to assist with, with children who are the objects of, of child sex trafficking in those countries. Because the gospel, beloved, has ramifications and implications for that. The reason why such a thing, such a, a wicked thing exists as child sex trafficking in our country and in other countries is precisely because the gospel and Jesus Christ is not prime in the hearts of people. That's why those at wickedness exists. And so that's a mission field in Thailand. And we can go on and on about all the missionaries all over the world. Malawi and, and Ethiopia and so many other places that we support and that we might not support directly, we pray for. But that there's so much work going on. And even here in Southern California, you understand, this is our mission field. Even if you never jumped on a plane to go to some foreign country, this is your mission field. The, the mission field is the same, that you and your community would put Jesus on display and exalt him by making disciples, right? That's what we're here to do. If you work at Disney, that is your mission field. If you work at Warner Brothers, that is your mission field. If you work in the social media area of life, that is your mission field. If you work as a trash man, that is your mission field. If you work for the city of Burbank or Glendale or wherever, that is your mission field. If you live in Burbank, whatever block you live at, that is your mini mission field. If you live in Glendale, that is your mission field. Pasadena, Sun Valley, Summer, you name it, wherever you're at, that is part of your mission field right there. To exalt Jesus Christ by making disciples. 
And I hope we really believe that with our hearts, beloved. That that's why we're here. If you're not out on the job place, and you have a family, and you are a mama who stays home with the kids, that is your mission field. If you are a husband, and you are a father, that is your first mission field in the home. Amen, brothers? That is our mission field first and foremost. We are disciple-making parents. And then that should extend out onto our communities, into the church, and all of that. And that's what we do even in the church. You know, the Great Commission of Making Disciples has an evangelistic and edificational component, doesn't it? Evangelism means that we we want people to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So what do we need to do? We need to share the message of the hope of Christ. That there is this one Jesus who is God, a very God, and who went to the cross and paid for sins on the cross, died in the place of sinners, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, and can be reconciled to their Maker through faith in Jesus Christ. We are to be sharing the message of good news, of the Gospel. And then there's an edificational component, isn't there? Because once people come to know Jesus Christ, they're converted, they're, they're born again. Now they're baby believers, spiritually speaking, and now they're to be edified, built up in the faith. We are to want to see them grow in Christ. So we use our spiritual gifts and our experiences and our abilities and all of those things, God-given wisdom, to invest into those brothers and sisters in Christ so that they are edified, so that they grow to be more and more like Jesus, all of it leading to the exaltation of Jesus Christ, right? Is this confusing at all? Not at all, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't Jesus merciful that he has been so clear about what he has asked us to do? And that's what he wants us to be about on this earth. And yes, that's got, that looks different for all of us. But this is our mission field, beloved. It's that mission that we see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is proclaiming. He's proclaiming the Gospel of God's kingdom. That was his priority. And it's fitting because from Genesis, beloved, through the last prophet of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, the Old Testament foretold of a Messiah king who would come to bring hope to Israel and to the world. Now we know that the Jewish, the dominant Jewish expectation was that Jesus is his Messiah, would be a political figure. That he would be one who would deliver Israel from the yoke of the Romans and bring back, bring them back to national prominence. That was the, the prominent um, Jewish expectation. Yes. And during his lifetime, Jesus didn't deny that national Israel would have a future. He didn't deny that. But what Israel didn't understand, listen, was that that wouldn't happen until Jesus' second coming. His people failed to understand that the focus of his first coming, as we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark, was not to rescue people, first and foremost, from political oppression, but from spiritual darkness. That his job, his mission on this earth, Jesus' mission, was not first to usher in a physical kingdom on earth, But listen, to initiate a spiritual one in the hearts of those who trusted in him. In the words of our Lord Jesus himself, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what Jesus came to do? He came to die and rise again for sinners. Right? That was his mission when he came to earth. And so that's what we're seeing in the gospel of Mark. That this mission was on the forefront of his mind. All of his efforts were, were resolutely fixed upon accomplishing that mission. Jesus is heading to the cross. Mark is, is moving us rapidly to the cross. But as he's headed there, we see that Jesus is having a polarizing effect upon his people, right? Upon everybody. Not just his people, everybody. To the extent that in Mark, we've seen that there's serious encounters, hostility from the Pharisees. And all of this, if you remember in chapter 3 and verse 6, culminates in the fact that it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. They were plotting together how to bring accusations against him that they can get rid of our Lord. And yet Jesus, as we saw last week, was still resolute on fulfilling his mission in the midst of or in the face of growing opposition from physical and demonic forces and in the face of great masses that are coming to him. Great demands are being placed upon our Lord as he grows in popularity, as people hear by word of mouth of the things that he's saying and especially the things that he's doing, that he's healing and casting out demons and doing all of these things. I mean, remember that we talked about the masses last week? 
the message that just keep coming. It says in verse 10 that they were pressing around him in order to just touch him. The idea there of pressing around him, is, it means that they were throwing themselves at Jesus, touching and pushing, trying to get, just, just get their hands on him, see if they could be healed of him. I mean, this is happening to such an extent that our lives, that, that our, our, the life of our Lord is endangered. And so he instructs his disciples in verses 9 and 10 to set apart for him a, a small boat so that he can get away, get into the deep waters if need be, but still making himself available to people. And so our passage, beloved, this morning comes on the heels of this, of this intense opposition and more so the great demands being put upon him by these great masses. It is a very hectic time in the ministry of our Lord. It's all, he's almost halfway through his earthly ministry, if you can imagine this. And yet, I've been struck. My own heart has just been so encouraged that in the midst of these demands, in the midst of this intense opposition, Jesus all along had a plan. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't taken off guard. See, our Lord is very, very wise, isn't he? Infinitely, perfectly wise. And so he had a plan in the midst of all of this to ensure that his mission would be fulfilled. And here in this passage, we have that wonderful opportunity of seeing this master plan unfold. And so what are some things that we learn from our great master as he was focused on fulfilling the great commission that would be instructive and, and applicational for us, I want you to consider three primary lessons from our Lord's life here. First of all, I want you to consider the master's dependence. The master's dependence in verse 13. Very simply, verse 13, if you notice, tells us, and he went up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain. That little word and there in verse 13 connects us to the previous passage. In other words, it's on the heels and in the flow of intense demands that Jesus ascends to this mountain. Most believe that this mountain was a mountain called the Horns of Hittin, some high cliffs on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus is ministering. And so Jesus ascends to this place to get away, to retreat from the massive crowds, including his disciples. What was he doing up there? Well, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, the parallel account tells us that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray to God all night. Now, Jesus retreating like this was very normal. We've seen this before. It's very normal routine for Jesus to get away from the noise, from the busyness of life and ministry, from the demands of the masses. And it wasn't because he was annoyed at people or because he was trying to be a hermit and people kind of got under his skin. Jesus wanted to get away because he longed for intimate fellowship with his father. That's what Jesus wanted to do. That's why he gets away yet again. In fact, if you look back in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we saw this a few weeks ago. It says, in the early morning, while it was still dark at the crack of dawn, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. There's our Lord. Early in the morning, when distractions are not there, when people are not um, trying to press upon him, asking him for things, Jesus goes to, to be with his heavenly father, to spend time with his father. That was a priority for our Lord, especially beloved, especially when he was busy, especially when he was more pressured. He didn't neglect those times with his father. Oh, how applicable is that is for us, isn't it? I mean, we are wired, if you're like me, to do the exact opposite, right? The more that things get hectic, the more there are things to do, the more busy we become, the more t intense things get, the less time we make for God. Even good things, even good priorities can be misplaced priorities if we elevate those things and those pursuits above our Heavenly Father, right? It's like Mary and Martha. Martha's running around, doing all kinds of service for the Lord. And, yet her, and her sister Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking upon his every single word coming from his mouth. She is sitting there. At that moment, Jesus was the ultimate priority. Mary wanted to be there, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. But oftentimes when things get busy and distractions come, 
We are less prone to make time for the Lord. And we deceive ourselves into thinking, hey, you know, the issue for me is time. I don't really have time. Listen, beloved, everybody gets 24 hours in a day, right? We all get the same time. Nobody in here has 24 hours in one minute, right? Everybody has the same time. The issue is we don't prioritize time for the Lord. Think about it. The great reformer Martin Luther, you know, many of you know of some of his great accomplishments. He was a catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. He was as busy of an individual as you will ever find. In times when things weren't, uh, weren't able to be accomplished as quickly as we are able to accomplish because of technology and all of that. He translated the New Testament into the German vernacular so that people had the, can understand the gospel, could understand the scriptures. He spent days and weeks and months doing that. While away hiding from the authorities who wanted to prosecute him, he spent days writing theology for the church, writing helpful tracts for the church, writing commentaries, articles, numerous hours doing that. He wrote many wonderful hymns. I mean, I can go on and on. Martin Luther was a very busy man. And yet, he once wrote this. I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. When was the last time you did that? I get up at 7 a.m. like, oh my goodness, I need to be at the office at 8 o'clock. I need to get myself ready. I need to get some breakfast. I need to get a good shower. Where does time with the Lord go? It's put on the back burner, right? Many of us are the same. The last thing that we do is spend time with the Lord. Susanna Wesley had 19 children over her lifetime. Imagine that, ladies. 19 children. Nine died in infancy. Only two would be used mightily. The Lord John and Charles Wesley, her husband, was a preacher, but very disengaged with her and with his family. They had a child who was crippled, another who couldn't talk until the age of six. They were in terrible debt. One daughter got pregnant out of wedlock, and the guy didn't honor that pregnancy, didn't marry the young girl. They experienced a lot of persecution as a family from church members. Twice their home was burned to the ground. Once someone slit the, their cow's udder so that they wouldn't have any milk. They couldn't go to Walmart, by the way, right? To get some more. And that was their livelihood. Someone once killed their dog. Someone burned their flax field. If all of this wasn't enough, Susanna daily worked the garden, milked the cows, schooled the children, managed the entire house by herself. Demands were great for Susanna Wesley. And yet her priority, beloved, was to spend time with God. You know what she would do? Her common practice was when she wanted to spend time with the Lord in prayer, is that she would put, go prostrate or sit down in a, in a particular location of the home, and she would put an apron over her head, and the kids knew that when Mama was doing that, she was spending time with God. Not to mess with her, and not to disturb her. She found time to spend time with the Lord. So here we have our Lord Jesus prioritizing this type of communion with his father. He was the ultimate example of that, yet he was the busiest individual that ever walked on the face of this planet. He, and he, was, he spent the whole night in prayer. Can you imagine that? 9 p.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 12 p.m., 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, all night in prayer. This was typical of our Lord to do this. And listen, if Jesus was a God-dependent man, how much more, beloved, should you and I be God-dependent people? This is very instructive for us. You know, I had to remember, and I have to remember this every single week, and reminded of that this morning, even in our prayer time as men together for this worship service. Unless the Spirit of God works in your heart as God's people, nothing that I do and nothing that I have prepared from God's Word will go anywhere. I need to be a God-dependent man. We all need to be God-dependent people. We want to see changes in the hearts and lives of those around us. 
We need to be going to the great game changer who is God, who can change things, right? But we do everything but do that. We complain to everybody around us about our circumstances and the things that we're going through, except go to the one who is able, more than able, if it's his will to change those things. The Lord was a God-dependent man. Let me ask you, what about you? What about you when, what do you do when trouble hits in life? What do you do when there are trials? What do you do when, when life is hectic? When something out of the expected takes place, takes you by surprise, when things are intense, when things are busy, when demands upon your time as an individual are, are severe and strong, what do you do? When was the last time that you actually retreated to your, spiritually speaking, inner closet, away from the distractions, and actually spent devoted time in prayer as our Lord does here and as was His pattern during His earthly ministry? When was the last time brothers, especially us who have children, little children, when was the last time that you turned off your phone to be with God because you need to be a leader in your home, shepherding your wife and children, and you need to be engaged? When was the last time you turned off the stinking iPhone, put it aside to spend time with God so that He shapes your perspective about how you ought to be shepherding your family faithfully? When was the last time, mamas, when you turned off the television or social media, so that you could be engaged with your kids and spend time first and foremost with the Lord. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time young people, youth, when was the last time you spent time with God undistracted, turning off social media? Listen, social media is not the problem. Anything our hearts and our hands get a handle on, that we are wicked and corrupt, so that thing is going to be used as a mechanism to sin against God. The iPhone is not the problem. It's our wicked hearts that are the problem, right? We don't remove those distractions so that we can prioritize prioritize time with the Lord. So we learn from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, specifically, I want you to notice here, Jesus is doing this, specifically getting away and retreating at this time to pray all night to his heavenly father, because he has a big time decision to make, doesn't he? Big time decision. We're going to see this. Who will comprise that great group of men who will be the pioneers, the trailblazers for his church, the foundation of the church, as Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says. That's why Jesus is seeking the face of his heavenly father. Who are those individuals? Jesus has watched many of these guys and people. And Jesus is seeking the wisdom of his father to know in this huge decision what the right decision or choice will be. So he spends the whole night in prayer. And by the time he comes out of his prayer closet, he reveals his strategy here. And that's our second consideration. Not only do we Consider here our master's dependence. But consider, secondly, the master's strategy in verses 13 through 15. Notice, it says, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he would also send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Amidst great demands, great needs that many people have, our Lord trying to buy time to be able to minister to all of these people, what will be the master's strategy for reaching people for himself, is the question. What will be his strategy? Well, Jesus could do it on his own. If there was ever one person who walked on the face of this planet, who according to his own choice could have just done all of this by himself, it was Jesus Christ. And yet that wasn't the plan, right? That wasn't the plan. Jesus had no limitations. He is God. Yes, in his humanity, he he voluntarily gave up the, the independent use of his divine attributes, but he could access those and just solve the whole problem himself. Yet that was not his strategy, beloved. We get a chance to see his, his strategy for fulfilling his mission here. And the strategy is this multiplication. He reproduced himself into the lives of other people. 
Maybe some of you are thinking, oh, here he goes again with the whole disciple-making multiplication thing. Beloved, listen, the text addresses it, so we have to address it again, right? And the big challenge that I would have for you as we look at this yet again, this disciple-making strategy of our Lord, the question is, are you living this out in your life, beginning with those in your home, extending onto the life of the church, and sharing the gospel with people in your community? All right? Notice his plan, his strategy was to fulfill his mission by multiplication. Our Lord invested himself into a few men to reach the masses. He focused on the few to reach the masses. And I want you to notice three aspects of this strategy of our Lord in verses 13 through 15. Okay, and let me say this before we look at these three. These, this passage, remember, is specific to the forming of the Lord's apostles with a capital A. Yes, and we'll talk about that. But these lessons that we learn here are principles from the strategy of our Lord that are applicable to us because we then take the baton and we're not going out and calling other apostles with a capital A, but we are making other disciples, right? So these are very applicable for us as principles, even though they're specific here in the life of our Lord to the calling and the specific choosing of his apostles with a capital A, okay, which is very unique. First notice that Jesus' strategy was to call for a commitment from these individuals. He called for a commitment. Look at verse 13. It says, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Notice this. Verse 13 there, the, the Greek there is emphatic, emphasizing the fact that Jesus himself initiated calling these men. It was according to Jesus' sovereign choice to do this. Nobody told him to do this. This was his initiative. This was not an open call for anyone to be an apostle with a capital A. Jesus didn't say, okay, all resumes in, folks. Everybody who's following me, all you multitudes, turn in your applications, resumes for the office of apostleship. You say, show of hands for volunteers for the office of apostleship. Now, this was a very unique time. And so after a whole night of intense and petitionary prayer, Jesus himself, according to his divine prerogative, specifically summons these men. That word there, um, appointed in verse 14 and appointed in verse 16, has to do with creating or forming a new distinct group. Jesus created this particular group. It's a distinct, select group of men that Jesus himself chooses, sets apart for himself. And notice the response of these individuals in verse 13. They were willing. It says that they came to him. In other words, they responded to his call. They submitted themselves to him. These were individuals that were already following our Lord. A couple of them had turned back and gone back to their jobs for a period of time. But they continued to follow him. And now, the, the sense here is that in coming to him is that they, they make a break from the uncommitted crowds to take their stand with Christ now as his ministry partners. They're with Jesus. They are a band of brothers now, under the lordship of Christ. Oh, this wasn't going to be easy, was it? Little did they know. Already they've experienced hostility, opposition, great demands, and yet they are willing to follow Jesus Christ and be his chosen select apostles. So notice the master's strategy. First and foremost, he called them to a commitment. He called them to a commitment. And again, this is specific to to the Lord's apostles. But don't we do that with regards to even the call for people to respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We call them to a commitment. What is that called? Repentance and faith, isn't it? That they turn from living a life of self-idolatry, and turn to Christ and put their trust in Jesus. They believe in Jesus Christ and follow him for the rest of their lives. We call people to a commitment, beloved. Oh, this type of thing really flies in the face of our culture, beloved. This idea of commitment, commitment. But it's a principle that we need to think about for a second. You know, many people who are already Christians have such a hard time with commitment, right? We are committed to our jobs. We are committed to our families even. We are committed to um, certain hobbies. We are committed to um, the Rams, right? Ouch, that hit me too, believe me. 
We are committed to many, many things. Careers, making money, getting a nice house, getting the right pet. All of those things. Evil in themselves? No. But we need to check our hearts. We are committed to so many things in our life, and yet we are not committed to Jesus Christ and to his people, right? Many people even have a difficult time right now understanding why biblical membership and why even put something like this out, Calvary Bible Church, which sends the message potentially that if you're not doing these things, you potentially are in some kind of a sin. Is that what we're saying? Absolutely not. What we are trying to do is for the, to the, for the glory of Christ and for your spiritual well-being and the well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ, we are calling you to biblical principles in God's Word that call for a commitment if you profess to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? That's what we're doing. People have such a hard time with that. Why do I need to become a member? Why do I need to do that? And we'll learn after the service. We have new members today. We'll talk a little bit about that. But this issue of commitment that our Lord modeled in calling a distinct group of men, and, and even before that, calling them to follow Him as believers who trusted, who, believed, who trusted in Him, who knew who He was, is so foreign to our culture. And yet that is what we need to do, beloved, in the church and in our world. Call people to a commitment to follow Christ. Now notice, secondly, the master's strategy was first to call them to a commitment, but secondly, these men were, to be, were going to be the, the objects of deliberate discipleship on the part of our Lord. They were going to purposefully be invested into. Look at verse 14. It says, And he appointed twelve so that, there's your purpose statement. Why did Jesus appoint these twelve? So that, purpose clause, they would be with him and that he would send them out that they might be with him and that he would send them out notice this first that they would be with him in verse 14 before sending them out they were to spend time with jesus they were to cultivate a relationship with him they were to learn from him by listening and and watching jesus this would be in the calm times and this would be also especially in the in the hard times see jesus didn't put on a facade for the disciples did he They were with him in weakness, though he never sinned. Vulnerabilities, though that never signified that Jesus sinned, for he was perfect and spotless. But they got to see our Lord in a multiple array of contexts, didn't they? In joyful times, with feasting with people, in happiness, but also in sorrowful times, in times when the Lord was righteously angry at people who who were an affront to his Father's temple, right? Right? They saw Jesus get righteously angry and deal with people. They saw Jesus be compassionate toward the least of these, towards people who had illnesses and sicknesses and who were demon-possessed. They watched the compassion of their Lord even put into action in those contexts. They watched Him respond to the fickle and to the rebellious. They were with Him in the deepest moments of anguish, beloved, when He cried out and said, Oh, that Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, right? How often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her little chicks. They heard him in those moments of anguish. Have compassion for the lost. And they were with him in the deepest moment of anguish, by the way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, cry out to his father, Father, not my will, but yours be done. The disciples watched the Lord. They were with him. He invested into them. That was part of his strategy to invest himself into these individuals. Pour his life into them. I mean, they spend so much time with Jesus that later on it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, that the religious leaders were astonished because they recognized uh, these the disciples as having been with Jesus. And they couldn't understand, beloved. They couldn't understand how these uneducated, normal, ordinary individuals could speak as they did because they were uneducated, not intellectuals, and yet they missed the whole point, right? They missed the point that these disciples had been trained in the best of schools, the school of Christ. So they became like him. And so before sending them out, he would invest into them very Deliberately, he called them to commitment. He poured his life into them. He invested into them. We learn a great principle here, don't we? In the Lord's strategy and and, and, in principle and how we need to be fleshing out ministry in our life. 
But listen to this. Fellowship with Jesus must precede preaching and sharing about him, right? Fellowship with our Lord must precede preaching and sharing about him. How can we genuinely share about one who we do not know personally? That's why if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that is your first, your first call, summons. That in response to this one who is the God-man who died for sinners on the cross and paid for our sins, that you would believe in him. That you would turn from living a life of sin and put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But then for us who are Christians, how are we, beloved, going to tell people about Jesus if we are not cultivating a relationship with him, spending time with him? You say, how do we do that today if Jesus isn't physically here? Today we commune with Christ through Scripture, through the Spirit and prayer, don't we? The Scriptures reveal Christ. Or are you saying, Pastor, that I need to get all of my ducks in a, in a row? I need to have all of my spiritual cylinders going so that I'm able to share the gospel or edify others? Absolutely not. What I'm saying to you is this. If you're going to call people to love, serve, and know Jesus Christ, then you better make sure that you are pursuing that yourself, right? The master's strategy was to call these men to commitment to invest into them deliberately. Thirdly, notice in verse 14, his strategy was to give them a task or a mission. He gave them a task or a mission, verse 14, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach and to cast out the demons. That verb there, send them out in verse 14, this is the verb form of the Greek apostle, which means to commission, to send with a specific purpose, What did Jesus specifically send out his disciples to do? He sent them out, notice in verse 14, to preach, to herald the same message of the gospel of the kingdom that he himself was preaching. Look back in chapter 1, verse 14. We've seen this. Right after the account of Jesus in the wilderness... And his victory over Satan, Mark 1.14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Look at verse 21. They came into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. At the center of that was the message of the good news, right? Look at verse 38 of chapter 1. And he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, Jesus speaking here, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Verse 39, and he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Beloved, Jesus gives his disciples the task or the mission to preach and to have the authority to cast out the demons because that is precisely what he was doing himself and he had modeled and exemplified for them. They were to herald this message. They were to preach Christ during his earthly ministry and especially upon his ascension, his departure from the earth. They were to continue to preach his message and be his witnesses. Notice that along with the task of preaching, he would also He also gave his apostles specifically the authority to cast out the demons. This was unique to these men. Not everybody in those days had the authority to do that like our Lord. Up until this this time, only Jesus had that authority. But now he gives that authority to his apostles. Most say that many believed in that day that the subduing of demons was evidence of the messianic age having arrived. And so for many people, their ability to cast out demons was evidence that the kingdom was present in the Lord Jesus Christ who had given such authority to men. And so they are representing him, his message, his authority that authenticates the fact that he is the Messiah. Now listen, these 12 apostles, beloved, that are even going to be named in in a couple of verses were unique. They were unique, especially the authority to cast out the demons. Later on in Acts chapter 2, we know that Matthias is the one that is chosen by lot and by prayer as the Lord reveals to the apostles in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 1 who is going to to now replace Judas Iscariot. Matthias is chosen as the one who is going to be the 12th apostle. And then later on, 
We know that Saul, later Paul, in Acts chapter 9, was called specifically by Jesus. He appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and called Paul, set him apart as an apostle to the Gentiles. Right? But besides those individuals, there are no more present-day apostles with a capital A. He says, but aren't we all sent out ones? Yes, we are, but not apostles with a capital A. So don't be believing the, the garbage on television of these present-day false teachers who call themselves apostles with a capital A, right? Show me the goods, maybe it should be our response, right? There are no present-day apostles anymore, no matter who claims to be one. They were unique. But what I want us to focus on is this. The pattern of focusing on the few beloved here in the life of our Lord to reach the many of personal investment into others still applies today, doesn't it? Still applies today. In fact, the pattern, if you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, the pattern is reiterated in one text here from Paul to Timothy, his son in the Lord and in in, in the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, or verse 1. You therefore, writes Paul to Timothy, my son... By which he's talking about his spiritual son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And listen to this the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice this. Paul in instru- instructing Timothy, he says, Timothy, There is a deposit of truth beginning with the gospel that I have invested into you and you are to be doing the same thing with others. You heard these things from me. Later on, he talks about his conduct as well. You followed my my words and my conduct, my example. Both Paul's words and his conduct, Timothy has, has witnessed and he is to pass that on to others. Other faithful men specifically here in verse two, who then in turn will be able to teach others also. Notice four different baton passes, if you will. Four generations here. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to other faithful men, and then other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And the implication is the baton continues to be passed on to others and others and others, right? In fact, there are five generations here, if you really think about it, because Paul, previously Saul, was invested into himself, wasn't he? Apollos, Peter, others who invested the truth into Paul when he was converted. Equipped this man, invested into this man, and then he had trained Timothy. Timothy was to do that with other faithful men, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. And you say, but isn't this passage specifically talking about just leaders? I think specifically here, it could be the first application toward training up new leaders. It could be. But beloved, listen, this deliberate investment extends to the whole church, doesn't it? I mean, we spent a number of weeks last uh, year. If you turn with me to Titus chapter 2, just a few pages over to your right, talking and seeing from Titus chapter 2 about the pattern in the church is to be the older investing themselves into the younger. This is not rocket science here. So basic. Titus chapter 2 verse 1. Paul writing to Titus, another one of his sons in the, in the faith. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And notice verse four, so that they might encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Why? Why all of this investment? So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Beloved, listen. The pattern in the church is to be one of disciple making where the older are invested into the younger. It is your responsibility, your loving responsibility as older men to be investing yourself into the younger men of our church very deliberately and purposefully. 
It is your responsibility as the older women of the church to be investing yourself, beginning with those ladies in your home, but extending onto the life of the church into younger women in our church. It is your responsibility who are older, more mature, wise, that you live a life of faithfulness so that you would set the pattern and the example and the model of Christ-likeness for those who are younger, beloved. I plead with you, as I did last year, that our church must be known more and more for fostering a culture of life-on-life discipleship where the pattern is the older investing themselves into the younger. That's what Titus 2 is all about. And of course, that could be formal over a meeting of coffee. That could be informal, inviting somebody into your home and investing into them. Yesterday I heard about a bunch of ladies getting together for Titus 2 tables to talk about very practical issues here at our church. That is a wonderful, practical way of applying Titus 2, right? That should be all the more something that we do here in our church. I was so thankful yesterday, a brother in the Lord here, an older man, very wise man, very godly man, invited one of my kids over the, their house to do some work for, for him in the backyard. And it was so such a joy to my father's heart, to, to, to my own heart, to talk to my son and to hear about not only how hard he worked, and I love that, he earned a well-earned dollar, right? But also the investment of the wisdom of this man talking into the life of my son, investing into him wisdom and knowledge so that he understands the secular environment and the importance of guarding his heart and guarding the truth. What a joy that was, beloved. That's what it could look like in a very practical way, in a very informal way. You investing yourself into somebody. We have so many mechanisms here at our church. You know, people get all bent out of shape about why small groups and why this group and why that group. Listen to me. Structures can come and go. We are simply trying to create context for you to be mutually invested into one another so that you are invested into others. Others are invested into you. And that is not the Calvary way. That is the biblical way of disciple making. Amen? And it's for your good, for your spiritual benefit. Stop viewing it as a burden. View it as a blessing that your shepherds are after your spiritual well-being and most importantly, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Please view it that way. I plead with you. And what is the goal in all of this investment? Colossians 1.28-29 says, We proclaim Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man or woman with all wisdom that we may present every man or woman complete in Christ. All of this disciple-making is for the grand purpose of you becoming more and more like Jesus and bringing Him glory, displaying Him before a lost world. That's the goal, to be Christ-like. What was the master's strategy, beloved, for fulfilling His great commission? Multiplication. He called people to a a commitment. He invested himself into a few, in this case, to reach the masses. And then he gave them a task or a mission, a purpose. And can I add one more? He mentored them, didn't he? The apostles would come back and he would give them a mission. He would give them feedback. He would talk to them about areas of weakness. We'll see some of those in the Gospel of Mark about what they were doing, deficiencies or whatever. He mentored these individuals. Listen, if this was the pattern of our Lord, if the God-man in his humanity saw the needs and the demands and he knew that he needed to reproduce himself into others, why don't we do the same thing? Well, it's hard, Pastor. Yes, it is. But the most worthwhile things on earth, beloved, are the oftentimes the hardest things to do, Right? The strategy was to reproduce himself into others. So basic, so simple, it's so neglected. Listen, for some of you, this may, this, this all, this disciple making thing begins with you committing your own life to Jesus Christ first and foremost. If you get anything from this message as a, as a non-Christian this morning, it is this, believe, trust in this one, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved. But listen, for those of us who are Christians, Let me ask you, are you serving him in this way? Are you investing yourself into other people? You say, how do I do that, Pastor? Just get involved for some of you. Just be here. 
I love what, what my brother Brad Kelly says oftentimes, and, I've, and I'm not quoting Brad verbatim here, but so much of it is just being here. Show up, right? And then obviously you need to be deliberate and purposeful. Don't just be here and sit around and do nothing. Get involved in the lives of other people. Open your heart up so that other people can get to know you. Just be around. Get involved in a ministry. And it's through that that people begin to identify your spiritual gifts and what you're strong at. And begin to affirm that. And begin to encourage you along in the Christian life as to other areas that you can launch into to be effective in serving the Lord. Just get involved, beloved. You who are older, are you investing yourself into the younger? Formerly or especially informally? Are you serving maybe in a ministry that allows you the ability to invest into others like Awana, for instance? Like children's ministry? Some of you need to launch into that area to start investing yourself into the next generation, into even the lives of other parents. Some of you are such a treasure and yet you're so inactive. You have so much to impart, so much gifting, so much experience, so much wisdom. And you're constantly beating your head, beating yourself on the head, guilt-ridden. I don't have very many strengths. I'm weak. I'm vulnerable. Listen to me. You have a preacher right before you who is weak and vulnerable, and the elders will cry out, Amen to that, brother, right now. Right? But God's grace is sufficient, isn't it? His power, Christ's power, is perfected in our weakness. So that we don't boast in our own abilities. We boast in the cross of Christ and in His grace working mightily in and through us. And if this is what He's called us to, beloved, to be about fulfilling the great commission, following the pattern of Jesus, then He will give us the grace and the ability to do that. Amen? He will do that, beloved. He will do that. So the Master's plan applies both to evangelism and to edification, all leading to His exaltation. Our mission is to make disciples, beloved, who know, love, and serve Christ, following the pattern of our Lord, how he ministered even here, specifically, yes, to his apostles. But this became in principle form the, the, the lessons that we can learn as we do make disciples on this earth. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, you have been so clear in your word. We thank you for that. To be a people who exalt your Son by making disciples who come to know, love, and serve your Son. Oh, Lord, help us to be that first and foremost, that those who have not trusted in you would give their lives to you, Lord, that they would count the passing pleasures of this world as rubbish, as nothing in comparison to coming to know Jesus Christ as their great treasure. And for those of us who do know you, Father, help us to not be inactive, passive. Help us to be highly committed participants and not passive spectators. Lord, Help us to glorify you in the use of our gifts and abilities and service. That, Father, your church would be built on this earth until your Son returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.